Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. A season that five weeks ago appeared to be crumbling is now reforming like a Terminator that had been shattered into thousands of frozen plasma pieces. The Big Ten has announced that it will play football starting in late October. The Pac-12 is working to be back around the same time, maybe a little later, probably a little later. Even the Mountain West appears to be getting serious about diving back into a fall season. And as all of this is happening, right before we started recording today, Charlotte at North Carolina this weekend was canceled because the 49ers lost a bunch of offensive linemen to contact tracing after a few positive COVID-19 tests. It was tempting to write yesterday when we were when I was covering the Big Ten that the Big Ten was back. But really, folks, we still have no idea if we're going to be able to complete this football season. That said, we do have some football to talk about, and we'll do it today with recurring podcast guest Paul Meyerberg from USA Today. We'll get into the Big Ten's reversal, what could lie ahead for the Pac-12, and turn our attention toward this weekend's games. As always with Paul, I never quite know where the conversation will go, but it's always enjoyable. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcasts, just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. If you like what you hear, give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is recurring guest Paul Meyerberg from USA Today. It's been a little while since Paul and I have caught up with each other uh, because it's been a crazy offseason. So our goal and people who follow this show may have heard this, but our goal early in this year before things went haywire was because Paul and I live only about a mile or so away from each other as the crow flies. We were committed to try to see each other once every, what was it, about a month and a half, six weeks, we had said we were to try to yeah, actually commit to do that six to eight weeks yeah, yeah. six to eight weeks yeah, see each other in person uh at least every six to eight weeks we got one in <laughs> we, got, we got one yeah. in and then of course everything went to hell and we haven't been able to do that as much so we're back to our where the foundation of our relationship which is essentially talking uh to each other when we podcast <laughs> yeah that seems like a normal state it's nice to have something feel normal yeah. Um, yeah. right now. Yeah. So I'll take it. You know, we'll talk college football from, from over, uh, over iPhones. I mean, yeah, we just talk on the phone. Yeah, that's about it. That's about, and the funny thing is we really don't even, is, is, is much as Paul and I are, are good friends, we don't even really connect with each other on the phone that much because I don't think either of us are big phone talkers. Maybe I'm assuming that with you, but I'm just like you and I have a lot of similar characteristics and I'm not a big phone talker. Um, and so I'm sort of assuming that you're probably like that too. Yeah, we're, we're just two, um, we're just two American men. We're just two men. We're just two guys. Right. That's we're just good. two people. It's just we're two people. We're yeah. just people. This is what this is what people yeah. do, right? This is what this is. This is what people do. They don't really talk on the phone anymore. We might text each other every once in a while. We don't really communicate. People don't really like to communicate with each other, with other people these days. No. Unless it's being no, recorded for podcast consumption. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh that's sad. Yeah. Yeah. So true. It's not, it's not false. 
It's not false. It's not false. So t- today is uh, we're recording this a little later in the week. It's going to pop up in your feeds a little later in the week because it was a very busy week of news. And the big news of the week was the Big Ten decided, no, it, it after all, we're going to play some football in the fall. They're going to start in late October, uh, try to get eight games in, be done in time to be have their champion qualify for the college football playoff. It was a, a situation that was celebrated mostly, not completely, but mostly yesterday. And I think even from my perspective, I thought like, you know what? I love college football and I love having more of it back. So I thought this was pretty cool. There's a lot of ways to sort of look at this. Let me ask you from this perspective. I'm not going to ask you if they're doing the right thing. Maybe we'll get to that at a certain point. Did the Big Ten? managed to save face because the Big Ten has been getting its ass kicked for basically five weeks now. Do you think the Big Ten has sort of done enough damage control now? Like, where does the Big Ten sort of go from here? And what do you think might be long lasting ramifications, if any, internally, externally to the Big Ten after what just happened? I don't think that they, I mean, they saved face in terms of being able to write um, what was perceived as a wrong, or at least be able to take a more nuanced approach to a decision that was obviously made rationally a month ago. I think the damage to the league's credibility is just profound, deeply profound. I mean, with people um, from our side of the table, with fans, administrators at universities, and certainly with athletes and with coaches. So there's a credibility gap that just coming out yesterday and, and reversing that decision is not going to heal that. And if you think about the long-term question marks and long-term issues. This is a step, but like, what is the Big Ten going to do to make a Nebraska or an Iowa or an Ohio State feel whole? And, and the answer might be $50 million, <laughs> but I don't think it is. I think it's deeper than that. I think it's it's a little less tangible than that because I think those teams, and I think we're, obviously I focus more on the football as you do, but I know those teams and those athletic departments and those coaches and players I don't think that they would look to the Big Ten to be a leader of this conversation in the future because of how poorly they managed it. And I think that's an issue for the Big Ten that you have to address at some point because the rift, if you don't deal with it soon, it's just going to widen and then it'll be a year or two from now. And those just the dialogue and the conversation is non-existent between the league office and the important key players and figures from the member schools. So that's a long-term issue for the Big Ten. And I don't really fault the schools. I certainly don't fault the coaches and players for feeling left out in the cold because, you know, it was 40 days in the wilderness for those guys with no direction, no communication and and really no explanation. So this is a step forward, but it's not the solution. I do think $50 million heals all wounds or heals a lot of wounds. And I, I think the business enterprise and the academic enterprise that is the Big Ten that fuels these universities is not going to come undone because it, it's too important. In other words, I don't think the Big Ten is is in danger of becoming the Big 12, where it's always going to be sort of a loosely uh, bonded group of universities that is sort of in it because this is the path they chose a few years back. And now we're sort of stuck with each other. But I do think from 
Uh, you know, listen, unfortunately, it's probably going to land on Kevin Warren. Like, I think it's up to him to rebuild credibility, even if he got a raw deal to a certain degree. And I think he did. I think he, to a certain degree, was used as a meat shield by the presidents who wanted to not have people know that I voted against football or maybe some of them who didn't want it known that I did vote for football in a pandemic because that wasn't necessarily the greatest idea either to some of my constituents. Um and that some of my doctors may have been recommending that we didn't play football in a pandemic, but yet I voted for football in a pandemic. So I think he did some protecting on both sides of the aisle there. But un- unfortunately, I-, I do think for a-, a new commissioner who's been given a- an impossible task, he now has a lot of relationship building to do under even harder circumstances than he or- or already would have had just replacing Jim Delaney. Yeah. And, and that's part of his like next year, part of the deal. I think there's a lot of obvious. Very specific minutia that needs to be worked out in the very immediate future about how to get the season restarted, how to get practice routines restarted, have to how to get teams in shape to go. But if you're Kevin Warren, like this is kind of part of the job, right? You're the face of the conference. When good things happen, you're uh, a genius, and you can do like the cover of Fortune magazine pose where you're like sitting in an easy chair, leaning forward, and you look like a genius. And then when things go poorly, you need to kind of take the hit. So he took the hit here. Um, not to say he's free of any culpability, but certainly as the representative of the decision, he took a hit. And uh, it's important for his tenure that it's that steps are taken to even the score for him. Because, look, like you're right, when the check comes in and it clears, like, it's all good. They'll take their 50 million bucks and it'll kind of all be forgotten. But when you want to move in lockstep as a conference, like when the Big Ten in the past has wanted to do something, it was very easy to get everyone to move in unison. Um, I don't know if the league would move in unison at this point, you know. So that's the kind of fallout of a early decision that was made premature and then the the bounce back to kind of correct that. I think the fallout is is the uh, reputational impact it's had on the commissioner and on the league. Do you, yeah, you know, you make a good point here because when t- your teams win championships, um, you get to, you get to take a victory lap, even though, you know, you're the commissioner, right? Like, you know, what, <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> but, but we've done that. We do that with, we've done that with Greg, Greg Sankey and we've done that with John Swafford, uh, has had a, has had a great late season, uh, late career run because in part, thanks to Clemson, right? He gets to get, he, right. John Swafford gets to take a, you know, take a victory lap and tip his hat because Dabo Sweeney's done a really good job at Clemson. So it's odd. And I'm, not this is not a knock on any of these people for their jobs, but it's odd that that's the dynamic with these jobs that you get to take the victory lap when other people do their jobs well. Um, so yeah, that's it's, where it's that's like where Kevin Warren see, is uh, now, right? Like when you see like after Clemson wins a national championship and you see an ACC person right afterwards, or you see John Swafford on the field and you're like, hey, congratulations, and then you're like, this dude didn't play, right? <laughs> right. John Swafford. Did Swafford recruit Trevor Lawrence? Was like, he's the point man? And you're like, why am I congratulating this, uh, this guy on it? Yeah. But <laughs> you take the good with the bad, you know? But also, you also take the good and the bad and four and a half million dollars. Right, right, right. No, no tears shed for, for the people in those positions. So when you were looking over the big tens return to play plan, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my impression and maybe you can just react to my impression. And that, and I wrote a little bit this yesterday, which is, 
many people were popping the champagne and were very pumped that this is that this is coming back but like this is not still not going to be easy and they didn't leave themselves a ton of room for like for mistakes here between the eight games in eight weeks between the hyper cautious and that's fine if that's what want to go that way 21 days a a player needs to sit out after a positive test um it sort of keeps going back to what i've been uh, a theme of yeah we're going to get a season but like what is this season going to look like so were you surprised at all by anything that you saw within the big 10's return to play plan anything that jumped out at you like boy that's uh, that's an interesting approach there yeah, what you wrote was was interesting, and it was basically like it all sounds good on paper, but then you kind of look at this condensed two month stretch, and you wonder how they're going to pull it off, um, which makes sense. And you hate to be a cynic and be a little bit jaded, but look, like we're seeing some games. We saw UNC Charlotte canceled this morning. It like it's going to happen. Like you, you know, you can take all the steps you want, but this we can't really control this disease. So you got to build in like a firewall. And the Big Ten doesn't really have much of a firewall here when you've got eight games in a two-month span from actually, well, it is about two months, right? Because yeah. October 24, December, yeah, just about exactly two months. Yeah, I mean, it, it um, believes its a, firewall is the, is the daily testing. It believes that that's the firewall. Yeah, and, and that's a huge step forward. And we might talk about that. But like, that's a big step forward and, and not disputing that that's like a major asset that has changed in the last month and credit to them to use that as, a, as justification to get restarted. But nonetheless, like even if you test daily, um, Charlotte, what's happening with Charlotte is a really interesting one because it's not they, Charlotte is not canceling against North Carolina on Saturday because they've got 44 positive tests. Like I think I don't know the exact number, but I know Tennessee had a major outbreak or including people who had to be put into contact tracing protocol. It's not like they're down 40 people. Um, they're down like a few offensive linemen. And it's really, I think, like one or two offensive linemen tested positive, but the rest need, the rest need to be in quarantine because of tracing. So that's like uh, a situation that could happen to anyone. Like you might just have two guys get COVID, but then your whole receiver core is decimated and you can't play. So long story short, it's great that the Big Ten is back and it's great that they're attempting to make this happen. But yeah, um, just to be uh, a downer, there's not a lot of wiggle room. And, I, and I'm curious about that. And if And if it happens where... A team misses two or three games because, you know, you have a 21-day sit-out period. How that impacts the, the schedule overall and impacts every team's ability to play as many games as possible. Because if the goal is to play in the playoff and to be eligible, you got to play eight games. And I think that's pretty much a, a minimum, including a conference championship weekend. I think eight games is the minimum you can play and be taken seriously playing 10 or 11. I want to talk to you about the playoff point, but let's also talk about the idea of what is a legitimate season too. And because the big 12 set a standard of like, okay, if you have 53 guys, including scholarship players, and of course they had certain limits of certain minimums, as far as offensive linemen, defensive linemen and quarterbacks, you have to play. And the ACC said, well, we're going to leave the overall number sort of open-ended but you have to have seven offensive linemen and they have to be scholarship offensive linemen. If that's the case, then you sort of have to play. But we're also going to leave this some again, somewhat open ended. So like you can have you can have a discussion with your health officials and your university president and kind of decide what you want to do here, which I thought was the better way to go. I don't think you necessarily want hard and fast. 
The Big Ten hasn't set that yet. The SEC hasn't set parameters on that yet. But it does beg the question of, because I asked Tom Herman about the Big 12's rule, and and he sort of said, yeah, like, do we just want to have games or do we want to compete for championships? Because if I have to, if I'm Tom Herman and I have to go play Oklahoma with a bunch of walk-ons because the rule book says that, then what the hell is this season? I mean, we're just, then, then you're saying that we are just trying to play games as opposed to we are trying to play, put our teams in position to win a championship. Where do you lie on that? Do you think that the Big 12 sort of did the right thing here or that the ACC has a better, a better idea in mind? Do you think it should be sort of case by case? Should we even be thinking about this? Are we really going to have a legitimate season here? Yeah, I mean, we are, but it's reverse engineered, right? I mean, we want a playoff. We want a national champion. So we're creating a season. We're not creating a season so that we can have a national champion, if that makes any sense. And that's fine. I mean, we've existed for the playoff since its formation. So that's not a new thing that everyone identifies a playoff as the be-all, end-all. I'm all in favor of flexibility. I do think, however, there need to be certain baselines. And I I think the baseline is... um, you can't have a position group where you're where you're you know moving tight ends to play an offensive tackle, and you know I hate that I can't really give specifics about numbers, but like if you can't just form the basic outline of a football team, a complete two deep with enough, usually you have seventy players on a road trip. Maybe the number is you need to have at least sixty two to sixty five players available at all times. But if you want to have a season, I think you need to be flexible. You know, and I, I don't think if you played with like a very hard baseline, straightforward, you need X, Y, Z, if that's conducive to pulling off what they want to pull off, which is the closest we can get to a normal season and then a, then a postseason. Yeah, so but, I would but then it's not a normal season, though. But then it's it, I mean, it really, if I'm going out and playing and I use Texas as an example, but I mean, what pick it, just pick any team. If all of a sudden, like I'm lining up. I have enough guys to go and my, I have enough linemen because clearly right. You can't, you can't move wide receivers to, to guard. So you have to have a certain, you have to be able to do a certain amount of like, you know, compositions. But if I suddenly have like three safeties playing linebacker, you know, like, you know, that's not a, that's not a represent. I don't know if that's going to be a representative game. And you can say, well, that comes up during the season. Sometimes, you know, you might have a a situation where you have a bunch of injuries and Lynn Bowden played quarterback for, you know, Kentucky all last year and they went to a bowl game. And I know you can come up with like exceptions to those rules, but I feel like this could turn into like, you could have some really bastardized games out there with some crazy lineups. And maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe it's just about getting the game. It is just about getting the games in this year. Yeah. I mean, we need to, first of all, normal, everything's relative. Normal in right now is not normal, normal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, uh, like if you're real thirsty and you go out to the store and you want some water and they only have Dasani. You're like, well, Dasani's trash. Dasani tastes like like it's from the toilet, but it's cold and I'm thirsty, so I'm going to have Dasani. This is like a Dasani season. We want football, right? We want a national championship. We're just going to take it. It's not going to be perfect. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be fits and starts, and they're going to have to jump through hoops and hurdles, and things are going to like blow up, get on fire, get doused out, fall off the cliff. It's all going to be a disaster. But this is what we want. We want a season. I mean, the Big Ten wanted a season. They're willing to accept the fact that it's not going to be pretty, not to mention, you know, they're going to accept the medical aspect of this thing. 
but there's a certain degree of acceptance that comes with playing in this pandemic. And I think as people who cover it and for your listeners who watch it, I think you just need to accept that you need to roll with a new normal. And the new normal might last into 2021, but for 2020, like don't book non-refundable plane tickets and hotel rooms <laughs> because you can be ready to go down to UNC to see them play Charlotte. Then you find out on Thursday that, oh, by the way, they're not going to play. Just be ready for the unexpected and accept it because the other option is to be like the Pac-12. And no one wants that. Let me put the Pac-12 on hold for a second because you mentioned the playoff. Well, we can attach the Pac-12 to the playoff because it looks like the Pac-12 is going to try to get back in the game too. But, uh, you know, I had an AD text me yesterday that he thought some teams in the conference would take three to four weeks to get ready. Other teams, and as people who have kept up on this, California and Oregon has had pretty have had pretty strict restrictions on what their residents in some counties can, in many counties, can do. Those restrictions have limited what the college football teams have been able to do as far as preparation. Like they can't do practice. They cannot football practice. They can work out, but even their workouts have to be in very small groups. So some of those teams, again, an AD texted me and said three to four weeks for some teams, five to six weeks for other teams. And in the five to six week, he was talking about those teams under restrictions. Uh, you know, Pete Thamel, then you know, our pal tweeted earlier today before this, we started recording. He, he, he had a, a Pac-12 source tell him maybe eight weeks that a team might need to get ready. Some of these teams that have been under really strict restrictions might need to get ready. So I think early November is probably the best we're going to do for the Pac-12. Does that eliminate them from the playoff now? You talked about at least at least eight games. I doubt they'd be able to get eight games in unless you're pushing the playoff back. Do you think anybody's going to accommodate the Pac-12 at this point? No, I don't think so. I don't think that it's possible to do it November 1st. Uh, or the first week of November and get there by December 20th within the obvious option of the of the playoff pushing it back. But the playoff exists in a kind of a tight window because of you reserve stadiums and you set up TV contracts and you don't want to bump up too far into the NFL. It's just, it's a kind of a delicate thing. So I don't see the playoff moving it back to the Pac-12. As like a, a digression about the playoff in terms of, and it kind of relates to the Pac-12, the reason why you don't need to wait for the Pac-12 is because one of the Factors created in the wake of the Big Ten's decision is that I believe that it legitimizes this year's national championship. And there's, if you include the Big Ten in the mix, I don't think you ever will have an asterisk. You won't have any sort of parentheses, oh, but XYZ didn't compete. I think uh, it removes all of that stigma from the national championship. I don't even think you need the Pac 12 involved to have the feeling that, hey, 2020, we knew who the national championship was or who the national champion was, and we don't need to worry about, you know, always kind of saying, but, but, but. So for the Pac-12 to get to the playoff anyway, you'd have to start before November 1st, just because of the, the time. The, you don't have enough weeks. There's not enough time. What I think could happen, and I think eight weeks is probably too far. I think six weeks, four to six seems more logical. If you can start on the first week of November, I can see the Pac-12 ending their year with the Rose Bowl. And trying to keep that tradition alive, I don't know how that would impact like ascending a team from the Big Ten there at some point, or if you just play your conference championship at the Rose Bowl. But the, you know the that, Rose Bowl, but the Rose Bowl is a a, uh, a a semifinal this year. You're talking about creating an actual sure. Rose Bowl, like a, a second Rose Bowl. Exactly. Okay. Right. And look, like I'm just giving a hypothesis about how they could end their season if it doesn't end in the playoff, because right. I don't see a real scenario how you can make that happen in that short window of time. One option would be to blow out your conference championship game into something bigger than it 
is or has been. Yeah, that's interesting. And they've already put the Vegas thing on hold. Now, who knows, maybe they can get that back. Right? I remember at the beginning of the year when they initially postponed, they said, okay, we're, well, obviously, because they're not going to have a season, you're not going to have the conference championship game. But they had said, oh, we're going to roll over our conference championship game. In fact, they had done that even before they postponed. Let me correct myself there. When they came out with their revised schedule, the Pac-12 said, we're not going to hold our championship game in, in Las Vegas this year. This is when they still were planning on playing. The revised schedule had home site championship game and they were going to roll over the contract with the, with Vegas for starting next year. Who knows? You're right. Maybe they could do something in Vegas and the, and the Rose Bowl to have two big games to sort of crown their, either crown their champion or, or get some kind of postseason action with another conference. And listen, I'm sure the Big Ten would be happy to be involved in those things, right? The, the non-playoff Big Ten team. And let's be real, because you said, well, the Big Ten being involved legitimizes the playoff. Aren't you really talking about Ohio State? I mean, are we talking really, yeah. really talking about everybody here? Maybe, you know, Penn State's going to be pretty good. Wisconsin has a chance to be pretty good. So that brings me to this. If you could just have had Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, maybe Florida, uh, LSU, Oklahoma, and Clemson, wouldn't that have been a legitimate? In other words, if you just had those seven or eight teams playing, couldn't that have been considered enough to have a playoff? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, you just picked, I mean, one of those teams is going to win the national championship, obviously. But I guess that sort of what makes me wonder, like, why are we bending over backwards to worry about the playoff? Like, I mean, we really, we, we've come to this conclusion over the last couple of years that the longer we've had the playoff, the more we realize not a lot of teams can win the playoff. So, like, maybe we shouldn't worry quite so much about the playoff, but now we worry a lot about the playoff just to accommodate Ohio State. College football needs a national championship. It doesn't exist without one. There's a reason why they used to have 18 selectors. Like, you need a national championship in college football. College football can't just exist in a vacuum. Hey, let's go have a Saturday and, and like, we'll play and, and you know, and, and it will never be talked about again. You need the national championship in college football. I understand completely why they're having a playoff beyond the finances because there needs to be a payoff. Like, there, it needs to end a national championship because that's the way college football has worked for 100 plus years. So, for me, I understand what you're saying about. Like, why are we forcing the playoff into existence? Or why is the Big Ten, someone might say, why are they forcing themselves to hold a season to play for the national championship? Because that's why football exists. And I think that's why a program like Ohio State, which obviously holds a lot of sway, in part pushed for this to happen because they believe that they can win the national championship. And that's what you play for. And that's why you pay your coach $5 million because you want him to win national championships. So I get it. I also get the argument for not having it. But I think those arguments are never going to go anywhere. That's fair. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast, and then we'll come back with Paul Meyerberg from USA Today. And you know what? Let's try to do this. Let's actually talk about this weekend's games and hope that they don't get canceled. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Back right after this. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, uh, college football writer with the Associated Press, and I'm talking with my friend Paul Meyerberg from USA Today. So, again, you know, before we started the show, North Carolina and Charlotte just like, no, we're not playing. Okay. (laughs) This is, I believe, the first, the closest we've come to a game time 
decision that a game has been, in this case, not postponed, but canceled because those two teams don't have the ability to find a makeup date. So that is a canceled game. A lot of the other ones have been postponed. This one has been canceled. But there's still some games this week. And, uh, you know, that's not the greatest slate of games, but we're doing the best we can here to come up with some entertainment. And the cool thing about college football, of course, is you can find entertainment in a lot of spaces. You can look under some rocks and find some entertainment. Like last week, we found this beautiful gem of a UTSA Texas State game that was just that was just adorable and and exciting. And that sort of got us through a mid-afternoon that otherwise would have been just Drek. So that will happen this weekend too. But you know, you look at the schedule and you're kind of like, ah, what's going on here? Like, I don't know like what to pin my hopes on. Louisville, Miami is the is the the night game and the spotlight game with game day. It is kind of interesting. I'm kind of interested, becoming more and more interested in Mikhail Cunningham. I referred to him as maybe the most underrated quarterback in the country. Am I on to something there? Yeah, I think so. I think it's fair. Um, I thought the way that he played last year obviously put him into that conversation and the and the way he's grown in Satterfield's offense. He's in that conversation to be on the be one of the more underrated, certainly in the power five, in terms of if we talk about a guy who's super productive and uh, you know, by the time all is said and done, potentially in that all America conversation. The on the other side of that is is Derek King, who had a very nice debut. What did you take away from Miami's debut? And what did you think was sustainable out of Miami's debut against UAB? Yeah, you know, I thought they played well. And first off, I understand that for a lot of maybe Miami fans even, and certainly for people nationally, beating UAB doesn't seem like that impressive a thing. I mean, they won 31-14. I thought they were pretty much firmly in control throughout. UAB is borderline top 25 to me. I think they'll be there at the end of the year in terms of being the best team at Conference USA in a 12-game season, potentially 10-2, and 9-3. and three. Um, So I, I thought Miami looked really good. And certainly for me, that was something that you wanted to see after you know a, a really disaster of a first year or close to a disaster of a first year under Manny Diaz. What's repeatable is that if they can run the ball effectively and protect De'Ara King, I think they can be dangerous on offense. Because obviously De'Ara King, in a normal summer, we're talking about him a whole lot more than we did, which was not at all. Because you focus on impact transfers, transfers, and maybe I'm forgetting someone, but he has a, he's probably the biggest impact transfer in college football. That's a guy who steps into Miami with a lot of experience. He showed you on that Thursday night how athletic he is, how careful he can be with the football. So I thought there was a lot to build on for Miami. And more than anything, you know, I think you feel good about Miami as a team off that win. And I don't really feel that great about Miami last year. And it may feel different on Sunday, but I think they've got a real chance of being Louisville. I get, I think if they do beat Louisville, they immediately become team number four or even maybe even team number three in the ACC. And they factor into the mix. So it's a big really big early season game for the Hurricanes. Yeah, that's what I, I was thinking along the same lines too. Like the winner of that game sort of falls into, as you said, team number three, maybe number four. Like it clearly Clemson is one. I think Notre Dame is pretty clearly number two. I think once you hit three, you can start looking around going, hmm, maybe this one, you know, maybe North Carolina is your three. I need a little more selling on North Carolina, but I could see if North Carolina is your clear three. And then where does number four come from? And you're right. I think the winner of this game probably becomes number four. Yeah, so I went down to North Carolina to see them play Syracuse in the opener. And it was interesting to see them in action because it really showed you, like it gave ammunition to, to folks who think that it's too soon and also 
gave some ammo to people who think that UNC is ready because for about, you know, 35, 38 minutes of game time, they, they it was just sluggish and they looked like a team that, oh, this is third best team in the ACC. This is a team that we decided would be top 25 last December in the second half of the military bowl. Um, and then obviously from like eight minutes in the third till the end, they were thoroughly dominant. So I don't really know what to say about North Carolina, but I did see against Syracuse enough to make me think that, you know, with Sam Howell, um, a really good defensive front, the way they played against Syracuse and a couple weapons at running back, they could, they, they might be just about as good as advertised. Yeah. Sluggish is a good way to describe it. I think Syracuse is very bad. I don't know if they have a, a real good path to not being very bad the rest of the year. Dino Babers even said after the game, we, you know, we probably need three or four games just to sort of figure out who should be playing what position, which is a little scary. But again, it's a weird year. Like at no point did I think North Carolina was not going to win that game. Now you were there watching it and more focused on it while I was at home sort of doing the bounce around to a couple of different things deal. But I kept a fair amount of attention on that game. And even when they look sluggish, I found myself thinking Syracuse has no path here to like doing enough to win, <laughs> like because they're getting some opportunities and they're and they're not doing anything with them. So at some point, North Carolina's really crazy playmakers will make a couple of really crazy plays. And that's sort of what ended up happening. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny, like I, this shouldn't have been the case, but in some ways I probably came away a little more impressed with North Carolina and I've been a very very skittish to crown them or very um very cautious to crown them um and to be as you know to 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 jump on the hype train with North Carolina but man they they do have some players they do really have some some interesting playmakers on offense there so I found myself thinking boy like if they just knock the rust off a little bit like they could easily be scoring 35 to 40 a game here like this could be a really crazy good offense just with a little bit of polish yeah and i think they're probably a year away in terms of like when you talk about a full complete season being a team that could win 10 games and, and get a new year six bowl as like the second best team in the acc it feels a year away but yeah i mean i was impressed with the individual players and you've heard of a lot of them Surratt, obviously sam howell uh those two guys are running back carter and um I'm forgetting the other guy's name. Like, but you see them in action and you realize that they have really good individual players. And the way that Mac Brown and that staff is recruiting, the talent level is only going to get higher. So you see like easily the ingredients of a team and program that maybe is not ready in 2020 to be the ACC runner up and, and get into a, a major bowl. But I mean, it's almost like you can see it coming down the pipe because everything is coming together. I want to ask you about you because the other kind of big game uh this weekend is uh UCF at Georgia Tech. Now Georgia Tech did a did a nice job last week of sort of stealing one at Florida State. I've bought in early on Jeff Collins. I think that that will work well at Georgia Tech cuz I think he will recruit well there and he will reach a potential that Georgia Tech in recruiting it has out there for them but has not been able to achieve so I think he has a chance to do that there uh, but they still also look like they a ton of work in progress and UCF I think is going to be really good now that this is their opening game and this is sort of their one chance to impress and now that the Big Ten's back in play and maybe in for a playoff I, I think that probably means the idea of having a, a group of five teams slip into that playoff is probably not going to happen 
which is going to piss off a lot of people. But uh, I, I am interested to see how this thing plays out and where Georgia Tech is. And if UCF can sort of roll it up on Georgia Tech and then hold that over the ACC's head. Yeah, that's look like only team nearly as happy about Saturday than Tech is UCF, right? Like playing Georgia Tech 1-0, and having beaten Florida State is a lot different than playing Georgia Tech 0-1, having lost by 17. That's just a huge deal for them. So yeah, this is the um, like look at me moment. Let's show the people what we're about. 3.30 ABC, the best game of the afternoon. Just a great opportunity. Um, and like you said, the odds of a playoff berth are really, really low because that's the world that we live in. If you beat up on Georgia Tech, which they're completely capable of doing, and then you run through a really good American and you beat teams like Cincinnati and you know SMU, Houston, Memphis, whatever, you give yourself a case. And it's not going to work, but at least UCF as a team is going to make the most potentially out of this power five game. They couldn't have asked for more. So we have, you know, I'm going to go back to our conversation from the first part of the show and the idea that, you know, we're just sort of piecing together a season here. Uh, I have said throughout this offseason leading into the early season that I've probably talked to fewer coaches over an off season than ever before, because I've just felt like I most of my conversations have been with commissioners and athletic directors to try to figure out, hey, are these guys going to play? I don't know how much you've had, you know, to sort of be in contact with coaches as much as you normally would have been during an off season and into an early season. But when we talk about sort of the legitimacy of all this, you know, again, we we just tried to break down UCF and Georgia Tech and Louisville and Miami as if things are normal. Is that possible? I don't know how, what kind of conversations you're having with coaches, but I'm wondering what kind of feedback you're getting on. Like, you know, I talked about Babers saying like, we might need three or four weeks just to get positions straight here. What is the range of conversations you're having with coaches or, or information you're getting from assistants and whatever coaches on how ready are we to play and what this is all going to look like? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And unsurprisingly, I think you see a, a range of options, a range of answers. I mean, I think there are specific teams within conferences that have not been playing that feel extremely prepared. Um, that's despite dialing back the 12 hour work weeks, you know, five hours of practice, no full contact. There were several teams that just feel very prepared. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that unlike the Pac 12, Big Ten teams have largely just continue to work, even though some programs took a break and, and, you know, not even COVID related, just kind of took a breather temporarily in August. All these teams have continued to play. So surprisingly, there are coaches in the Big Ten who feel really good about, we can be ready to go with time to spare. We're, we'll be rolling by October 24th. Then you have teams and, and coaches who have been preparing for a set game for X number of weeks on September 5th or 12th, whatever the day was who are just feeling touch and go. And I don't know if you feel the same when you talk to guys, but there's this feeling of, we hope to be ready on Saturday. We hope to stay on track for Saturday. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And I think that that's the predominant mentality and mindset from coaching staff. So we have this game Saturday, we will prepare for Saturday and we hope to be fully ready to go, but we are ready for any and all choose your own adventure style side roads that we need to take. And that's the environment we live in, you know? Yeah. I do wonder if that was a little bit of, of, of how many teams came into this season 
trying to convince their players that you're going to play. Uh, you know, and listen, Middle Tennessee, maybe they're just terrible, right? Maybe they're just horrendous. But boy, that looked like a team against Army that wasn't sure it was going to play. That after the third time their AD came to them and said, no, this is who you're playing to start the season. Those guys looked like they were like, you know what? Really? Really is, you know, come on. Uh, you know, we'll just, you know, we're not buying it this time. <laughs> like you, there's only so many times That's you can really fool us. Point. So I'm, I'm just one, like, now, and maybe that washes away as the season goes on and kids are like, Oh yeah, we are actually going to play these games. Like we're really going to play these games. And, and there's a certain level of preparedness and focus that then really clicks in like they can say oh no we're focused on playing we're focused on playing but i do wonder if there's a there's if if, to a certain degree you have to sell on some programs like no 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 we're really going to play (laughs) we're seriously playing and and i i think that might take a few weeks to wash away and then it becomes interesting the teams that have had games postponed again how do you like how does virginia tech respond when they finally do have to play yeah, it's like um, like jury duty. You're like, I don't think I'm going to have to do it. It's like, I got to call at 9 a.m. And they're like, we need you to come in. You're like, oh, my God, I got to go do this. Um, yeah, so there's that feeling of we may play, we may not play. And I don't think you can have a season that way. You raised an interesting point about a lot of coaches feeling the need to make sure the guys know what they're playing for. And that might be a reason why Big Ten teams feel ready is because coaches felt like they had to keep the energy up and keep the tempo and pressure up to best of their abilities because they knew that if they didn't, that guys would not respond because they would have nothing to play for. So like keeping guys motivated for whatever was a primary focus. It's hard to get motivated to play army period, especially if you play defensive line, but if you're not ready to play the game and you're not as a program, like in the mental space of we're playing Saturday, we're playing Saturday. Um, Yeah, I don't, not to mention that it's probably not the safest thing in the world. I just don't, it's not conducive at all to success. And if you're not going to be ready to play and, and invest in it being, you know, playing on a Saturday, what's the point? To extend the analogy. So then you get called for jury duty and you're thinking, well, and this is the way it works in New York. So I don't know if it's it's the same in other parts of the country. Probably not because there's such a a large population here. So you get you get the call. So you call in the morning and damn it, I actually have to go. And then you get there and you're thinking, you know what, though, Eh, I'm just going to sit in this room and I'm going to read my book and they won't call my name. And then because they have so many jurors, what happens if they don't call your name on the first day? A lot of times what they do is they just excuse you. You're done. You're good. You know, come back. We'll we'll find you in another four years from now. So a lot of times jury duty in New York can really just be one day of like reading your book in a large hall, um, waiting to hear your name possibly get called to possibly be in a jury pool. Um, so yeah, the, the, to extend the analogy, it's, it's not only that you get the call in the morning, now you got to go and you're reading your book and you know, you maybe went out for lunch and you come back and your name still hasn't been called and it's like, 245 and you know if you can get the three those judges are going to get on out of here and try to make it a short day and oh they called my name at 245 oh man 
Now I have to go like right. sit in and get questioned about like, you know, possibly being on another pool. It is hard. That That is the mental space to try to get into the mental space of being a juror is completely impossible because it's all about assuming you're not, I'm not going to get picked. It's impossible to convince yourself that you're, you're going to get picked until you get picked. Oh yeah. And then you go in at three o'clock and it's the murder trial and you're like, I don't want to be here. Guilty. <laughs> Just let's just get out of here, you know. And the guy's like, "Hey, uh, could you invest a little bit more time in my in my life and death, please?" Um, yeah. I, I, I Have you ever actually been on a jury? Panel. Have you ever? No. Is that how it works? I've only seen it, Matlock and uh, that kind of stuff. You have you have done oh, jury duty though. You've been one of those guys who like never got picked, and like we're able to like, oh, I, I did my one day and I got my piece of paper, and now I'm done. Like that's that's all, all you've yeah, experienced. No. Could you tell from the way I described the juror experience that I've never actually sat in one? I assume it's very dramatic. Um, <laughs> DNA will be discussed, ballistics, blood spatter. I I mean that's what. I assume every jury duty experience is like, but no, I've never. Right. They're all murder trials, right? They're all. (laughs) (laughs) Paul Meyerberg from USA Today, the great national college football writer, my friend. Uh, I appreciate you doing this today. It was fun to talk some football as if like football is normal. Uh, We'll see how this goes the, the rest of the way. I will repeat what I had posted on Twitter. I am very happy that the Big Ten is back to be part of the college football season because I love all of college football. So the more of it, the better. I am not focused on one thing. I'm sort of focused on the whole of college football. I hope the Pac-12 comes back and I'll be happy if it does, uh, but I'm still not sure we should be doing any of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, like as a, as a person, I'm happy for the players. Um, those guys need to play football. It's, that's what they're driven by and motivated by. So I'm very happy they get the chance to do that. I just hope, as everyone does, that they can do so safe and not have any long-term impact on, on anybody's health. Paul Meyerberg, USA Today. Thank you very much for doing it. Thanks, Ron. And now, three and out. First down. We're a couple of days out since Kansas's latest humiliating loss. I know there is a ton of work to be done in Lawrence. The program has been tossed into such a deep hole that it might not be fair to judge any coach until he has had three or four years to get things fixed. But I was skeptical Les Miles was the man for that job when he got it, and I have not wavered one bit from that since. To be pretty much outclassed by a middle-of-the-pack Sunbelt team, even at the start of year two... Seems pretty inexcusable. Maybe Miles will have the last laugh here, but I don't see any reason to think so. Second down, interesting storyline in South Bend this weekend with Charlie Weiss Jr. coming back to Notre Dame as offensive coordinator for USF. Weiss Jr. is considered a rising star in coaching at just 27 years old. His father, had some good times at Notre Dame, but ultimately didn't have the right stuff to sustain the Irish. Charlie Jr. has been on college football sidelines since he was a teen. No doubt his connections helped him land a gig as an offensive analyst with Alabama in his early 20s. He's parlayed that into a steady rise up the ranks. He spent two years as Lane Kiffin's OC at FAU, and the Owls had an excellent offense last year. USF is in a major rebuild under first-year coach Jeff Scott and barely cracked 400 yards against the Citadel last week. That probably doesn't bode well for the Bulls against a talented Notre Dame defense, but it'll be interesting to see if Weiss can inflict some pain on his father's alma mater and former employer. 
third down. I'm really interested to see the debut of BC coach Jeff Halfley this weekend against Duke. That's a solid way to get a read on what's going on with the Eagles. They shouldn't be overwhelmed by Duke's talent, nor will it be a walkover game against an overmatched opponent. It's only one game, but I think it'll give us a good view of what the former Ohio State defensive coordinator has cooking in Chestnut Hill. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Sarah McCrory, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.